Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, my great-grandfather, Louis Cressilia, immigrated to the United States from Genoa as a boy, and he was a lifelong anti-imperialist Democrat. So it followed from those two things that a dictum of his that lives on in family lore was that, quote, a Sicilian is no more an Italian than a Filipino is an American. But in its way, it's a phrase from a lost world. If you know that Genoa is in the far north of Italy and Sicily the uttermost south, then you get the picture there. But what's the connection between Filipinos and Americans? Modern Americans are shockingly ignorant that anyone ever existed. My guest, Christopher Capazola's book, Bound by War, How the United States and the Philippines Built America's First Pacific Century, is a long answer to that question about connections. In 2011, the Obama administration announced that the United States will be making a pivot to the Pacific. But as Capazola makes clear, the United States has always been involved in the Pacific, and the Philippines has always been near the heart of that involvement. Christopher Capazola is professor of history at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He has previously authored the award-winning Uncle Sam Wants You, and is a co-curator of The Volunteers, Americans Join World War I, 1914-1919, a traveling exhibition that originated at the National World War I Museum and Memorial which assiduous listeners to the podcast know that I think is one of the best history museums, if not the best, in the country. Christopher Capazzola, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks for having me. So I uh, wanted to record this and and drop the podcast uh, around Memorial Day, and life intervened. And that was particularly because uh, this is, in a way, it's a military history, which leads to a cultural history and a much diplomatic history, which leads to a social history. It's a really interesting book, but it begins with uh, a really moving anecdote. Could you, uh, which I suspect has lived on in in your mind as well. Could you, could you share that and its relationship to Memorial Day and to Veterans Day? Sure thing. Um, So in some ways, the book itself begins on Memorial Day, um, uh, which is, of course, an American holiday that records and honors those who died in service um, in our armed forces. Um, But it's not a a moment of Memorial Day in the United States, but in the Philippines, uh, thousands of miles away in the Pacific, uh, in Asia, um, where the United States maintains a military cemetery, the Manila American Cemetery. Um, And I was in the Philippines doing research for this book um, and visited the site um, and was struck, really, by the way that it captures the the story in this book, but also captures a a chapter of American history and Philippine history uh, that I think both countries um, really could could benefit from examining. Um, And if you've ever been to the Manila American Cemetery, it's like a lot of other um, uh, cemeteries maintained by the U.S., uh, like Arlington or, or other sites. Um, it's incredibly sort of uh, beautiful. It's very you know, well-maintained, um, you know, very fitting memorial. Um, most of the soldiers who are, or many, if not most, of the soldiers who are reco- uh, honored there are Filipinos, um, both uh, in the U.S. Army and in the U.S. Navy. Um, and for me, that um, sort of triggered a, a series of questions, right, about how uh, did Filipinos end up in the U.S. Armed Forces? Um, why did so many serve over the 20th century? And, and what does that show us about the, the relationship between these two countries? So we could say in really broad terms that the U.S. involvement uh, in the Pacific began with the first ships that involved in the Chinese trade, um, which is a important subject for some recent books. Uh, but, you know, for your, in your terms, uh, when did American involvement in the Pacific really begin? Yeah, I think you're right. That, of course, uh, the United States has always been interested in, in the Pacific and in Asia, um, and certainly um, trade, whaling, all those kinds of issues were, were there from, from the 18th century. Um, but the, for me, uh, and 1898 is really a, a turning point. Um, this is the point at which 
the United States is involved in a war with Spain, the Spanish-American War, which is fought largely in the Caribbean and mostly about the Caribbean, particularly Cuba. But um, it also involves Spain's largest Asian colony, the Philippines, um, where American forces, um, first naval forces and then military forces, um, invade and, and occupy. Um, and this was no sideshow to the Spanish-American War. This was um, a massive war. Um, and I think it really sets the United States on a, on a different course for the 20th century, um, something I call the Pacific century, um, a time when this is really, you know, sort of a, Americans orienting themselves to Asia and, and also using Asia to understand their place in the world. Now, it's um, an often repeated um, phrase about the British Empire, much contested, that the British Empire was uh, acquired in a, in a fit of absent-mindedness. Um, in some ways, the Philippines, uh, if not an absent-mindedness, it, it does seem to have been a, a series of accidents that led to that. Is, am, I, am I right in, in, in reading you that way? Uh I don't think so, actually. I don't think okay. that they're accidents. Um, it also wasn't a you know, carefully orchestrated plot. Uh, That's for sure. Uh, to, <laughs> it was, it was uh, good, too. Yes. You know, yeah. um, that it's not, it certainly, uh, it was a series of improvisational choices in, in, the, in this intense period from 1898 to 1902 or so. Um, but, um, but it was part of a larger vision of the U.S., um, globally. Um, and it's a vision that was made, and this is, I think, important, um, particularly for American readers. It was a vision that was sort of made by, not just by Americans, um, but also by Filipinos um, as they pressed Americans, uh, as they challenged that authority, and as they, they attempted to remake it um, over the years. Yeah, this is, I mean, it's very, I mean, this is bound by war. It's a dialogue. Um, there's a dialectic going on. Um, yes. And, uh, and, and, Everyone changes each other uh, in, in this in, in the course of that. Um, so the the short thing is that uh, Commodore Dewey, was it Admiral Dewey, uh, mm -hmm. sails from Hong Kong and defeats the Spanish fleet in Manila Bay. Um, how did U.S. troops then get involved? Well, uh, when the United States Navy defeats the Spanish Navy in the Philippines, um, that what they don't fully understand um, is that they are also intervening um, in the Philippine Revolution, right? An ongoing political and increasingly military project um, to get Spain to leave um, and for the Philippines to be able to sort of secure national independence and sovereignty. Can I, can I ask a question there? That's, that's yeah. very interesting because Americans were very, very keenly aware that they were involving themselves in a Cuban revolution against Spanish sovereignty. Um, but they didn't see that there's a Philippine revolution going on? I mean, no, surely... they did. They did. Okay. They didn't fully understand it, though. Okay, okay. And in, in part because uh, they f sort of found one person, Emilio Aguinaldo, who mm -hmm. they took to be the leader of this uh, revolution and thought that um, they could sort of help him, uh, help them overthrow mm -hmm. uh, Spain. Right? Um, and this is not so different from other times in American history where we've sort of uh, hoped that the enemy of our enemy is our friend. Help me help you. you yes, know, that's exactly. The Jerry Maguire theory of international relations. Yes. And in fact, the United States supported Aguinaldo, um, armed him to some extent, um, certainly made promises uh, to him, uh, or at least he understood them as promises. Um, but then uh, the tide turned and the United States... Um, basically realized that they were not interested in liberating the Philippines from Spain. They were more interested in acquiring it as a territory for the United States. So why? Why did the United States decide that it wanted a colony in the Philippines um, when it um, it didn't make that, when people, of course, push back at this, but it didn't make that decision with Cuba? made the decision with Puerto Rico, but they could have gone either way for Puerto Rico. Why did it decide that with the Philippines? Um, well, I think it, it's, uh, it's not an easy question to answer because I think that Americans didn't um, all, they may have all gotten to the same conclusion, but they got there for different reasons. Huh. Um, there were some, like, um, like Theodore Roosevelt, who um, would soon become president, 
um, who actively advocated acquiring a territorial empire. Um, there were plenty of others who saw economic interests in the region. Um, there were others who, who thought that this would be an important um, challenge to other empires in Asia, right? particularly the British, um, to some extent the French and Dutch, and also increasingly the Germans. Um, uh, but you know, most average Americans were not paying attention to geopolitics. Um, they understood in some ways this might be uh, an experiment, um, it might be temporary, it might be permanent, um, that, that Americans don't speak with one voice in this. Um, in, and, uh, and to some extent, Filipinos don't um, either. Right? Um, they are unified in uh, opposition to American rule, um, but not entirely unified on how to uh, challenge the Americans and what kind of nation they would build as an alternative. And yet I'm struck by even those who really wanted a colony in the Philippines. Um, I, I might be wrong, but it does seem that I mean, they weren't going to, that there was no fact finding trip to India to see how the British were doing things. Um, there was no, uh, it, it seems awfully ad hoc. It's not like they ch chose the best lessons learned of European imperialism in the 19th century and say, hey, let's do this, but better. Or am well, I wrong about that? Uh, American sort of colonial officials and governmental officials, the civilians, did spend some time studying how other empires did it. Okay. Um, what's interesting to me um, is that the, uh, the military, particularly the U.S. Army, um, turned not less to other empires, but more to its own history. Um, mm -hmm. So in the 19th century, uh, in the American West, the Army had established a force called the Indian Scouts. Uh, were recruited soldiers from Native nations to fight um, against other Native American nations um, in those Western wars. Um, and that's a, a tradition that, or, or an institution that's very quickly adapted to the new Philippine situation. And you see the establishment are, as early as 1899 of what would become the Philippine Scouts. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting because you know, if, if the British have been running the American West, um, we probably would have that first, second, and third Lakota regiment. Um, you know, there'd been the, the Cheyenne um, mounted, you know, rifles or something like that. Uh, they would have, have uh, the Indian scouts were relatively small, uh, if I'm not mistaken, compared to as a proportion of the overall American U.S. Army in the West. Um, is that and is that right or am I wrong about that? No, that's absolutely right. Um, uh, in in the U.S. West, the the Indian Scouts are a pretty small force, in part because the U.S. Army's task there is different than mm -hmm. what it is in the Philippines or even what the British were doing in India, right? In part that the task of, of settlement uh, and colonization in the American West um, required U.S. Army forces in substantial numbers, whereas uh, eventually U.S. Army forces in, in the Philippines were were greatly reduced to the point where there were actually more Philippine scouts than there were regular U.S. Army soldiers. So, how did the Philippine scouts work, and how big were they, and and what was their what was their task? Um, so, the scouts were an initially, um, you know, an ad hoc response, right, an experiment, um, as so many things were during the Philippine American War, um, and. Uh, like I said, there's divisions in the Philippines about this. Spain had been a colonial power there. And Spain actually had um, enlisted Filipinos in a colonial force. Um, and many of those people were sort of persona non grata um, as far as other Filipinos were concerned. Um, and in fact, they, many of them turned to the United States, hoping mm -hmm. for protection um, and also an opportunity to, to you know, find a place in, with this new colonial power. Mm -hmm. Um, it's interesting. It's like a, it's like a, another lesson of insurgency and counterinsurgency that insurgencies, the insurgents can also displace people culturally and socially uh, who then will turn to the uh, occupying force. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they're looking for social cohesion, too. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this ad hoc reaction of, you know, something in the middle of the Philippine-American War then becomes a, a formal part of the U.S. Army in 1901, the Philippine Scouts. And I think, um, you know, I, I think this is one thing that 
is almost is woefully understood, under understood, <laughs> misunderstood <laughs> yeah. um, by by Americans. So it's not in most uh, histories um, that the Philippine Scouts is, was a really substantial military or, organization component. Um, they these are U.S. Army soldiers. Um, they were from 1901 until it's eventually uh, disestablished in 1947. Um, you know, they are part of our armed forces. And the U.S. maintained a colonial army. This is something we think only Britain or France did. Uh-huh. We did it for 40 years. Uh, the scouts were, um, their enlisted ranks were exclusively Filipino. Um, Filipinos could serve as uh, sort of non-commissioned officers in these roles. Um, but it's uh, it's it's... Officers were overwhelmingly Americans, English-speaking Americans, um, almost exclusively white Americans, um, mm-hmm. although there are African-American units in the Philippines as well. Mm. Um, and the scouts do, um, are, they are the army of the Philippines. Um, they are designed both to protect the colony um, from internal um, revolution um, and also to protect uh, the Philippines from uh, external threats, which as World War II emerges and that becomes increasingly Japan. So uh, we should say that the army, the U.S. Army, and uh, is being um, also transformed by the Filipino experience. Um, a look at uh, men who served in the First World War and sort of involved in the in the recreation of the. I, I know is the old army up to World War One. I, I, I don't. I forget the terms of art here, but um, yeah. But they the, and even look at the older men, older generals in. Um, the World War II, like Joseph Stilwell, um, they're all blooded they're all, and trained on the job in the Philippines. It's really quite an incredible set of experiences that they've all had in the Philippines. Yes. Um, and in some ways, almost any sort of prominent military name of the First World War, mm-hmm. um, from General uh, John Pershing you know, on down, um, is someone who spent a substantial amount of time in the Philippines, right? Trained largely in in colonial maintenance and counterinsurgency. Uh, right. And they then sort of bring some of that um, to, to the Western Front. Um, although in some ways they also try, to, try not to. Um, mm-hmm. They try to, try to do something different. Yeah. But as you say, this happens in World War II as well, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, one of the things that I was most struck by was the role, for example, of Dwight Eisenhower um, yes. in sort of designing the initial, um, what would become the Philippine Army. Um, and a lot of uh, people become old Asia hands, uh, like like MacArthur, but also like Joseph Stilwell, um, by beginning their career by being fascinated with Asia while in the Philippines. And so this begins what what you're calling, uh, I think, very persuasively, the first Pacific century. Yes, uh, and it's a it's a way of under it's a it's a place from which um, American policymakers, diplomats military officers viewed the rest of the world, in particular Asia, um, and that both informed their worldview, and I think it also sometimes distorted it. Mm-hmm. Right? And they well, how, of, did, how did it distort it? I think sometimes they, they, um, uh, they took um, experiences that they'd had in the Philippines um, and thought that they could be replicated somewhere else in Asia. Um, simply because it it was Asia, right? Um, mm-hmm. But um, you know we see this to some extent um, in uh, efforts in in China um, in in the 1920s. The U.S. military is in China, um, uh, and, but we see it really clearly. I think uh, to fast forward to the end of the story um, in Vietnam, mm-hmm. um, where a lot of the early efforts in South Vietnam in the 1950s were sort of efforts to transfer things. Um, cultural practices, political institutions from the Philippines um, that were just not going to work um, in South Vietnam for, mm-hmm. for very structural reasons. Um, briefly, how did the Philippines run as an American colony? They went through several transformations, uh, three by my count, till they became an independent nation. Um, how, and it's, it's very confusing and very Byzantine. Could you explain it? And now having said all that, could you explain it briefly? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard in, to tell this story over the course of a century when there's really complicated uh, laws, complicated institutions, definitions of terms. Um, but uh, I think if you're trying to remember how were the Philippines run as an American colony, the short answer is um, on the cheap. 
Um, this was not um, a project of long-term settlement and transformation. Um, this was, um, in almost every area, a small-scale enterprise where small numbers of military officers, business leaders, missionaries um, were trying to sort of uh, accomplish a great transition or, or win profit or, or maintain safety, um, but without a lot of funds um, and without asking much from American, the American public or the American taxpayer. Who, who really, like my, grand, my great-grandfather, really didn't want to know about it. Yeah, and I think um, I mean, on, on all sides of the political spectrum, by the way, this seems to be that there's just like kind of there's like eh, whatever Philippines, you know, Democrat, Republican, they all say you know, whatever. Um, yes, this is um, you know as as one um, as one sort of uh, diplomat puts it at the, at the negotiations in, in Paris after World War One, you know that the Philippines are a hot potato um, that that no one wants to hold in the hand, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, but. It's, it's sometimes ignored, but it's also, I think, not completely uh, ignored or forgotten. Um, you know, in some ways, it's hidden in plain sight. Um, and that's one thing for this book. You know, I don't, a lot of people have a sense that the Philippines were completely ignored or forgotten. Um, and what I'm trying to show is once you dig down, they're, they're actually woven into American history more, um, more fully than I think we might realize. Uh, one way is the role of, of Filipino workers um, in Hawaii and also in California and the Pacific Northwest. Um, could you explain how that how that happened, how the, the Philippines became a, a labor supply to the Western United States? Yeah. And so in some ways, the fact that the Philippines was a, a U.S. colony is precisely why there are Filipino-American communities um, and why they take the form that they do. Um, and... Uh, the during this time period, um, there are severe restrictions on migration from Asia, um, starting first in the 1880s um, with restrictions on Chinese and then eventually on Japanese immigrants as well. But those restrictions couldn't be extended to Filipinos because the Philippines was a colony of the United States. Um, so particularly in the 1920s um, and 1930s, you see Filipinos migrating um, first to Hawaii, um, also a U.S. territory, though an incorporated territory, on the path to statehood. Um, and there they're largely working in agricultural work, um, particularly in sugar, um, in the plantations, sugar plantations in Hawaii, um, and also eventually to the mainland west coast of, of, of the United States, um, to California. Um, in, more than anywhere else, um, where again, uh, the work is largely agricultural. Um, and uh, then as the, as the depression hits, right, um, there is less need for this labor, um, less need for, you know, more competition for jobs. Um, and this is part of what pressures uh, the United States to um, uh, give, to promise independence to the Philippines um, but along with that promise um, comes a provision that says Filipinos can no longer migrate in such large numbers to the United States. Hmm. What the one uh, extraordinary uh, feature of, of Filipino American involvement is the role of Filipinos in the United States Navy, and for how long, and and as particularly how long that goes on. Could you explain how that began and um, and and the nature of it? Yeah, I think this was one of the sort of more uh, amazing stories um, that I had some sense. Um, and I think, mm -hmm. you know, people who've read really any uh, sort of history of the Navy or anyone who serves in the Navy sort of knows this connection. Um, but I think we don't really fully know that history. And so I really wanted to kind of bring that out. Um, that in, in the Pacific, even in the 19th century, um, the, the U.S. Navy recruited local labor for sort of lower, you know, kind of lower rank positions um, in, on, in the Asian fleet. Um, but the, the history of Filipinos in the U.S. Navy starts actually in, in the middle of another imperial conflict, um, so called the Great White Fleet. Um, so in this sort of period, right around 19, oh, between 1905 and 1907, um, Japan is a new rising power. Um, and they've just won a huge war um, with Russia. Um, they are the sort of um, you know, increasing competitor for the United States in the Pacific. 
uh, and um, there's a threat actually of, of war. Um, and uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who's president at this time, um, realizes that he needs to, um, you know, he needs to basically move a substantial number of American ships from the East Coast to the West Coast um, in case there's a war with Japan, a naval war. But he doesn't want to make that look like a war move. Um, so what he does is he says instead of it being a, you know, a, a trans the transportation, it's going to be basically a parade, a big festive parade. Um, and, uh, and all the ships will be painted white, which means that they're, you know, they're sailing in peace, not in war. Um, and, that, and hence, that's the name of the Great White Fleet. Uh, it's also designed to show off all of America's you know, sort of newly built uh, ships. But there's one really awkward complication, um, which is that some of the lowest ranking sailors on those ships were actually Japanese. Um, and so the Americans had to get rid of them um, so that Japan couldn't use this against us as propaganda. Um, so they were very quietly eliminated um, from, American, from the American Navy, um, and they were replaced with Filipinos. Um, some of the very first Filipinos were recruited um, in 1907, um, 1909, um, you know, in these very early years. Uh, and they continued uh, to serve for, for decades during the colonial period, um, and also all the way up until the 1990s. Um, and so this is another whole part of the story that after the Philippines becomes independent in 1946, the, the two countries agree that Filipinos can continue to join the U.S. Navy, uh, and they do, um, all the way until the end of the Cold War. Hmm. I mean, and this is the... People might not realize this, but in, in whatever weird inter-service uh, uh, negotiations, the Navy is responsible for the White House mess. Uh, and so for decades and decades and decades, uh, if you dined in the White House, you were served by a Filipino naval steward. Exactly. Yes. And uh, yes. And so for those of your listeners who don't know, the White House doesn't have a kitchen, right? It has a mess <laughs> exactly. uh, uh, managed by the Navy. Um, the the under different terms over the years. Um, but for most of the 20th century, um, uh, the Navy maintained that. And, and as you say, yes, the, the, there were would have been Af uh, Filipinos and to some extent also African-Americans um, in, the, in the steward and messman branches um, serving in the White House. Um, but for me, this was an irony, um, an amazing irony, that um, for most of the 20th century, um, the, the Navy provided not just um, sort of the kitchen and dining services in the White House, but also personal service, um, mm -hmm. uh, basically essentially butlers or valets. Um, and so for most of the 20th century, the first person that the president saw when he woke up in the morning uh, was a Filipino sailor in a U.S. Navy uniform. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so that, for me, captures the, the, the complexity um, <laughs> yeah. uh, of that, but also the, the, the irony, right, that um, uh, this is not a forgotten or hidden empire, right? It's, it's right there in, in plain sight. Uh, it, and it lives on and on and on past the, um, long past Filipino independence. Yes, absolutely. Um, so one of the things you make clear is that um, Filipino politicians have always, I think from the very beginning, uh, been anti the same person has often been anti-American and pro-American, um, maybe at different times of their career, but um, sometimes almost simultaneously. Um, what is World War II the closest that they, in, in, in unity that the two nations have ever been, or is that an illusion? Um, well, I think you... You raise a couple points there, right? I think one is um, the, the one way that I like to explain it is that um, Philippine politicians are always concerned uh, um, in the 20th century about uh, Philippine sovereignty, their ability as a people to make up their own mind. Of course, yeah. right? Um, mm -hmm. And for some, that means independence um, from the United States. Um, for some, that means um, especially after independence in 1946, figuring out you know the terms of an alliance with the United States, right? And 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 that's why you could sometimes hear the the same politicians um, taking different positions at different times, right? Sometimes criticizing the United States, sometimes embracing the United States, 
um, because that's the you know the elephant that's the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the, the thing they have to have to work with. Um, I think when it comes to World War II, um, I think that is the time at which the two countries are are most uh, sort of bound up together. Mm-hmm. Right? And um, even though for much of World War II, uh, the the Americans are 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 gone. Right? They have been de- uh, defeated by Japan. Um, they leave. Japan occupies. The Philippines uh, uh, governs it for two and a half years. In fact, declares independence um, and creates a, a you know an independent country. Um, uh, but nevertheless, American the, the question of America was always still there, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, some number of Americans are are there fighting as guerrillas or or they're imprisoned as POWs. Mm-hmm. And I can see. I mean, when in the book that in many ways. Um, there is a certain um, legitimacy in Japan proclaiming themselves liberators, and there's a certain—I um, don't know how to say this. There, there's a there's a certainly it makes a sense that Filipinos would welcome there'd be certain Filipinos that would welcome the Japanese as preferable to this sort of um, odd American domination of their sovereignty. Yes, uh, and I think um, you know there's a uh, a way of, of thinking about this to say that Filipinos are are caught between two empires, right? mm-hmm. um, and they have to navigate that, um, and it's it's complicated, and it can it it's you know it's risky um, mm-hmm. uh, to figure this out. There were absolutely um, some number of Filipinos who thought that Japan was the better path to. To national uh, self determination, right? This was a country. Japan was at least speaking the rhetoric of Asian unity. Um, they called it the the co prosperity sphere, um, and Japan spoke of of kicking out European empires from Asia, um, including the United States. Um, but in practice, the the experience of occupation and the experience of living under Japanese colonialism during the war. Um, did nothing to persuade most Filipinos <laughs> that this was, you know, any going to be any better. Or Thais, uh, or Burmese, uh, or yes. Malaysians. I mean, we could go on down the list. Too. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and, and in fact, uh, armies of, I mean, of extraordinary size of guerrilla fighters, uh, tens of thousands, mobilized in various islands of the Philippines uh, to, to fight the Japanese occupation. Yes, and I think you know you're right to, to point to their size, um, also to their their power. And one thing that's really striking is that these guerrilla armies are not just um, you know sort of small bands and in you know hiding out in in the jungles, although there are some of those. Um, they're actually sort of governing large parts of the of the Philippines, um, particularly as the Japanese start to withdraw. Um, they retreat um, uh, the Japanese into smaller and smaller sort of um, uh, locations. And the, the guerrilla armies are increasingly governing the country that are validating marriages, that are stamping, you know, sort of property documents, um, that are telling teachers what to teach in school. Um, and I think that we sort of lose that, that part of it. But I think I wanted to kind of write that into the book because it shows that these this was not just um, – uh, guerrillas trying to, you know, help the Americans return, right? Mm-hmm. To help Douglas MacArthur, who had promised, "I shall return." And um, they are, do, you know, doing a lot of the work of of kind of redefining the Philippines um, on the ground in the middle of the war. Yeah, it's a it's a really important point. They're not just throwing Molotov cocktails at a Japanese supply truck. They're uh, they're they're actually, um, as movements like this do. They're redefining what it means to be Filipino and what the Philippines are. Yes, and they are, and they're fighting with each other um, over mm-hmm. the terms of that, right? And some of them, some there are some very bitter battles actually between guerrilla forces. Um, some that are more oriented toward the Americans, some that are um, more uh, oriented toward um, toward the Philippines, some that are uh, internationalist and even communist in orientation, um, and that becomes a really kind of bitter, bitter fight within the war itself. What um, Was it necessary in post-Filipino and post-World War II in, in Philippine politics to have some connection to um, the American to, to the forces of liberation or to the guerrilla movement? Um, 
I don't know if it was politically necessary to have those connections. Um, I think it was almost inevitable um, because mm-hmm. so many people had fought um, uh, in in, the, in some form in the war. Um, if anything, there were sort of complicated issues uh, related to those who had served in the Japanese colonial administration, um, some who were accused of collaboration, mm-hmm. um, some who were even tried under an institution called the Filipino People's Court um, that I kind of trace in, in, in this book. Um, but those were extremely complicated questions um, within Philippine society, and they were often sort of left to the side very quickly. Um, that the pressures of rebuilding a really devastated country um, and the demands of, of a Cold War that emerged uh, you know, almost as soon as the Second World War was over um, really sort of locked away a lot of those questions um, that were, uh, as, as in lots of countries all around the world, were never really fully confronted. Now, the, the Philippines, um, we didn't talk about this, but in many ways looking at it, uh, there's Philippines is sort of a category, that, uh, a classification that's imposed for, by the Spanish. There are a lot of different islands. There are many different languages in the, in the Philippines. I mean, there are thousands of islands and probably hundreds of languages, uh, but we call them the Philippines. Um, did anti-Japanese sentiment after the war, did that act as a glue, a sort of nationalist bond? Um, I think that the national unity comes actually earlier. Um, and I think it's worth remembering that um, that this this notion, right, that this uh, that the Philippines is not a unified place, um, it was in fact actually a governing tactic that the mm-hmm. United States used um, to uh, to deny uh, Filipinos their their national identity and therefore their national independence. Um, I think one of the real ironies is that it is, in fact, actually uh, all the way back in 1898, in the process of fighting against the Americans, that Filipinos really form an identity as Filipinos, right, in a national sense, right, in that sense of, you know, uh, as nationalist movements are emerging, you know, all over the place. So, yes, you know, just like um, Italy and Germany were, you know, a a collection of different states that didn't all understand each other the way each other talked. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, that's true. Um, But this was a this this national identity, I think, emerges much earlier. Now, this is a very um, there's a lot in this book. I'm just skating across the surface. I had a really hard time figuring how we would talk about it without getting uh, bogged down in in, in various uh, very interesting. There's a lot. Yeah, just keep. Yeah. There's a lot of re- lot lot of good things to read here. There's a lot of good things to read. Um, could we uh, briefly talk about some of the the personalities uh, of uh, uh, Filipinos uh, and American? If you want to throw them in, mm-hmm. um, uh, Ramon Magsaysay. Well, we can come to that, but him, but. Uh, a bit, but there's some really fascinating personalities. Um, Carlos, uh, Carlo Romano, um, mm-hmm. who is very long lived. Um, but there, could you talk about a few of these uh, people uh, from from Aguinaldo forward? Um, absolutely, um, and I think that I'm glad that you said this because I think um, these are. Uh, some names that are household names, um, you know, marked on on streets and statues all throughout the Philippines. Uh, But I think they're crucial figures in American history um, as well, right? And I think that American readers um, really need to be more familiar with them. Um, And uh, I think um, in some ways, you know, the... I would maybe I'll start actually if you don't in the middle of this history sure, um, with, absolutely. with two really sort of um, remarkable figures who I think capture much of 20th century Philippine history in their dialogue with each other, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that would be Carlos Romulo and Lorenzo Tanyada. Mm-hmm. Um, so Carlos Romulo, they were both um, sort of born in two relatively prosperous families, um, both uh, uh, you know under colonial rule, studied in the United States. Um, and both sort of returned to the Philippines, and they shared, um, you know, sort of a hope that the Philippines would be, uh, you know, a strong, independent nation that would, you know, play a role in the world. But this led them in in opposite directions in terms of how what they advocated. And I think there they capture the the dilemma that. Um, the central question of Philippine foreign policy in the 20th century is, are we better off with the Americans or without them? 
Um, and that's the, the central question. Now, Carlos Romulo, um, the answer is um, we are better off with the Americans. Um, he uh, serves in the Philippine Army. Um, he actually leaves um, in 1942 from Corregidor, um, goes to the United States during World War II, goes on a national speaking tour to you know, sort of convince Americans that the Philippines is, you know, this is a crucial part of the war effort. Um, he becomes a sort of, uh, you know, the best known Filipino speaker and figure in the United States. He wins the Pulitzer Prize for journalism. Mm -hmm. um, he's really an amazing figure and then spends the next, you know, sort of 40 years um, in a series of government positions in the Philippines, um, trying to advocate um, uh, for uh, closer relationships between the United States and the Philippines. Um, Tanyada, uh, Lorenzo Tanyada, in some ways takes a different path. He uh, wants, he is among those who feels, well, the Philippines will be a, a freer country, uh, a safer country if the United States is gone. Um, if, if the United States is there, the, the, then the Chinese will not invade. The Soviets will not invade. Um, uh, that the, there will be no nuclear threat. Um, and he takes a series of positions that sort of challenge the United States. Um, all the way from 1945, when he's trying to prosecute uh, collaborators after the end of World War II, um, all the way up until the 1980s, when he's really one of the leaders of the so-called Anti-Bases Coalition, ABC, that's pushing to eject U.S. military bases, um, that's seeking to overthrow uh, Ferdinand Marcos. Um, and in some ways, Romulo and Tanyata are you know, um, the, these figures that I, I hope every American gets to, to know them um, mm -hmm. through this book, um, because I think that they, they have contributed a great deal more to American history um, than I think most American readers realize. Um, can we uh, finish up by uh, discussing the, um, the interesting continuities of um, Filipino history um, uh, in the late 20th century? Um, I'm thinking of the connections that you make between Ferdinand Marcos and uh, Duterte, the current uh, Filipino leader, um, which is really fascinating. Um, and it, it points to something uh, very sad about Filipino history, um, to my mind. Um, and but although with the hope that things might even out yet again, as they did in between Marcos and Duterte. Um, yes. So, uh, so Rodrigo Duterte, who's elected in May of 2016, is, uh, is an incredibly difficult figure to sort of pin down. Um, but I think that the, that press coverage in the United States has, has not fully conveyed, um, some of the ways that he fits into longer traditions, um, in Philippine politics, um, uh, speaking very much as an outsider, uh, sort of challenging kind of entrenched power. Um, you know, sort of there's a lot of inequality in the Philippines. Duterte really sort of positions himself as speaking, you know, for the little guy um, and, and challenging that. Um, and really sort of drawing on, uh, you know, some kind of tough guy rhetoric um, that, uh, that is, is part of, of Filipino politics and, and has been for a long time. Um, of course, Duterte doesn't just sort of um, talk about this, right? He actually implements policies um, that are that are devastating consequences for for human rights um, and for violence um, uh, against ordinary people through the drug war um, that he's so-called drug war that he's launched. Um, although drug use and trade rates in the Philippines are no higher than they are anywhere else in the world, um, but it's really in many ways an excuse. Um, uh, and also newly passed legislation um, that restricts freedom of speech and so forth. Um, but uh, for, for many people, um, he is also trying to tap into um, uh, memories that they have of the Marcos era, um, which um, for people who, are, um, who experience that uh, as, as one of, of, of order and prosperity is something they, they might wish to go back to. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Duterte is tapping into that um, to the extent of going so far as to sort of rebury Ferdinand Marcos um, in the so-called National Heroes Cemetery, um, mm -hmm. which is uh, essentially uh, their, their Arlington, um, basically right next to the Middle American Cemetery that I mentioned at the beginning of our talk. 
and he celebrates. Uh, is it? Am I? He's made the the date of Marcus's imposition of national law, martial law. Sorry, is is a holiday now, or, or is celebrated in some way? Uh, it is. Yes, it is. It is marked in some way. Um, you know, I think. Uh, but uh, I would also point that you know, in between there come uh, between the, those two figures um, with mm-hmm. their authoritarian practices. Um, are, is also a very vibrant civil society, right? Yeah, um, yeah. That in, on multiple times, um, Filipinos have taken to to the streets um, in collaboration with a, a press um, that that challenges authority, um, with church institutions that sometimes challenge authority. Um, you know, and I and I think that um, you know that that. Uh, I, I think it's important to kind of include that part of the story as well. No, it's, it's it is, and that's why I was trying to get at it in my question is that there's a there is a there's a continuing dialectic in the Philippines, um, uh, and there's all there or it may be less. Um, there's always a snapback. Um, it's not pretty. Sometimes uh, it could, some people people can die during the snapback, but things do snap back. Yes, and I think, but I think it's also important for um, American listeners and readers to to know that you know this is uh, this is a question that is fundamentally for for Fil- for Filipinos to determine for themselves, right? And I think that the extent to which the United States um, was so deeply involved in the overthrow of Ferdinand Marcos, um, uh-huh. you know, whether they supported it or not, um, it was seen as an American decision to be made. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that uh, you know that kind of of intervention is something um, that shows the long legacy of of U.S. colonialism in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Uh, did Filipinos expect that the United States would ultimately have to make the decision about Marcos? Uh, were they, they they weren't surprised when did, did they look to the United States to do that? Um, I think uh, I think. Um, during the so-called people power sort of revolution, they sort of cr- crucial sort of week or so in February 1986, mm-hmm. um, when Corazon Aquino and, and others were challenging Marcos, um, it was clear to them that um, that the United States could could help, um, not necessarily by overthrowing Marcos with military force, but by shining shining a light on the situation, um, uh, particularly the American press. Um, but also visiting American diplomatic delegations that would demand an investigation of a, a very sort of rigged election that had been called in February of '86, mm-hmm. um, and so I think that they, you know, they they didn't necessarily know believe that it was Americans um, to dis, it was for Americans to decide, but they knew that American intervention would would make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're now in the second, uh, uh, the second Pacific century, the second um, for the United States. Um, will the Philippines be important to it? I can see one way in which it would. Um, contrary to Lorenzo Tenyada, um, China is more interested in the Philippine territory than it was even when the Americans were based at, at Clark um, and at uh, Subic. Um, is that one way the Philippines could become a, a part of a, a continued preoccupation with American uh, statesmen and um, diplomats and uh, officers? Um, well, you know, uh, whenever you ask a historian about the future, they, you know, they rightly answer, um, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I, I well, I'm talking say. about the present, actually, right the now. Present, but, yes. Yeah. Um, but I think that... Um, you know, the one thing we do know, right, um, is that the Philippines will be central to any U.S. policy in in the Pacific in the next century. But why? Um, I mean, why not Japan? Why not Taiwan? Why why South Korea? Right. Why why the Philippines? And it I seems... think that the history history has a has a role to play in explaining that or answering mm-hmm. that question. Right, that this is America's um, oldest alliance in the region. Um, America has still a great deal of military connections there. We are bound by a mutual defense treaty um, to protect the Philippines um, in case of attack. Um, We have under the um, EDCA, Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, which may be uh, 
under renegotiation, you know, we have very close military ties, um, ties almost as close now as, as during the decades when we had these giant bases um, at Clark Air Base and Subic Naval Base. Um, and uh, so I think that that's even as um, the current president Duterte challenges and questions that relationship, um, I think that there's, there, it's not going, I don't think it's going away. Mm-hmm. Um, and in part because there are also very close ties. Um, there are 4 million Filipino Americans, um, um, most, you know, most of whom are related to someone who's emigrated since 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are enormous cultural connections um, so, and, and so forth. Um, and so even if the United States' primary interests in Asia might not be in the Philippines, I think its primary connection um, will will be it is from the Philippines, from which the United States will view, or uh, I, one hopes not, confront China um, in in the twenty first century. Oh, one last uh, one last question. Um, I said at the beginning that it's um, this is a military history, it's a cultural history, it's a social history. Um, how do you think of yourself as a historian, and and what kind of book is this? Uh, um, did it change in the course of writing it or researching uh, it? Uh, no, I think I actually set out to write the book <laughs> with precisely these connections. That's right? unusual. <laughs> and I, you know, in the beginning of the book, I say it's a, it's not a history of foreign policy, but of foreign relations. Uh-huh. Um, which for it, me, it's a very nice. That's a very nice distinction, by the way. I, lo- I like that very much. When I read that. Yeah, and I think it's. Um, it's a way of thinking not just about diplomats and armies, but also immigrants, right? mm-hmm. also, you know, sort of families, right? Mm-hmm. Also these kinds of connections. Um, and I think that this, this story of these two, how these two countries are bound together um, is part of a, a kind of history that now goes, you know, by the name of the U.S. in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So we take seriously diplomacy and, and military power, but we understand that America, America's role in the world can, is, is much broader than that. Um, and it also needs to be seen um, transnationally, right? That, mm-hmm. that, you know, this is a history um, that is not just of the United States and written from the United States. It's also written sort of from the Philippines, right? Mm-hmm. Using Philippine sources, Philippine, um, Philippine archives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that kind of history, um, you know, helps us understand uh, the United States and also helps us understand the relations that we have with countries around the world. My guest today has been Christopher Capitola. He's author of Bound by War, How the United States and the Philippines Built America's First Pacific Century. Chris, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thanks for having me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runnett. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.